0: Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality, handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation or schedule challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set yourself up for success and sign up for their newsletter. Thank you for your support, Ugly Duckling Oboes.
1: Hey oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. What's up? Well,
0: it's a good day cuz I'm talking to you. <laughs> we decided to uh wistfully <laughs> dish about some fun music related travel stories. And um, we got some really fun submissions on our social media. So I guess I'll just go ahead and give you mine first. Although compared to these ones, mine is super late. <laughs> I was in my undergrad in Connecticut, which is only, you know, where I was in Hartford was only a couple hours from Boston. So my studio mates and I, oh, this must have been in like 2004 or 2005, something like that. We were, there was a small studio and we were all really close. And we decided to drive to Boston to hear John Farillo, the principal oboist of the Boston Symphony, play the Strauss Concerto. And I remember we got there like barely in time because we underestimated the Boston traffic slash parking situation. And <laughs> I remember flying in, like literally they were closing the doors to the hall. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I just like scooted in right at the end. And we found a seat, and then immediately he came out on stage and started playing.
2: And we were like, oh, my
0: God. <laughs> it was extremely stressful, but very rewarding. <laughs> Do you have any fun travel stories, music related, that?
1: Well, I was going to tell one, but now your story of traveling specifically to see a concert reminded me of something I had totally forgotten, and I actually can't believe I'm about to talk about this on Oh my the god, double yes. read podcast with all this oboe listenership. But yes, so when Chris and I first started dating, and well, he's older than me, but I was a young undergrad. I was just and okay. I'm going to preface this and defend myself a little bit. I was very green. I did not know anything about classical music. I had not had a private lesson before college. So I did not come up in youth orchestra listening to the Western canon, none of that. So please don't laugh at me too hard, but y'all are gonna laugh at me. I'm gonna laugh at you definitely. So we were in school at Eastern on the east side of Washington state and we traveled to hear the Seattle Symphony. And I was like, super stoked. And they were playing this great program of works that I'd heard of but were not familiar with, which included the Emperor Concerto and Symphony Fantastique. And so we're listening to Symphony Fantastique. Of course, I'm loving it. Oh my and God. then I was not familiar with the offstage oboe English horn call and response. <laughs> And so I was like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with the principal oboe? Like, why did he get up and leave? Like, that's so unprofessional. Maybe he broke a breed. Maybe. Maybe he had to go to the bathroom. I thought something had gone, like, disastrously wrong. And someone had had to play it from backseat. I'm crying! (laughs) (laughs) I've crying too because I hadn't even thought of this. It just came to my mind as you were talking. You're like, this is a really lame way to play this solo. I was like, I thought I was about to hear some of the best music being made in the Pacific Northwest, and this principal elbow just gets (laughs) up in the middle of this piece that I traveled for. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! <laughs> I'm literally crying. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I never thought of that before. <laughs> I had no idea what was happening, so I just made up my own. Subject. What did Chris do? I don't know. He probably just took my lead. Like I, uh, I don't even remember. <laughs> but, but, but then uh, you have to remember he he came back obviously, and so I thought, oh, everything's fine. And must have figured it out <laughs> and finished the rest of the work. Oh. So my question
0: is, what happened? <laughs> By the way, your husband just texted me what is happening?
1: <laughs> He's just hearing me like scream laugh from the other room. <laughs> Listen, Brene Brown would give me some vulnerability points right now, so I'm just <laughs> So when you learned about the symphony in history class, was there like an aha moment? Like it's a big deal to you guys, but in studying the symphony, you know, you talk (laughs) about program music and usually you do the, uh, uh, March to the scaffold and probably the witch's Sabbath, but you don't do the third movement. So I didn't realize what was going on until I played it in grad school. And then I kept my mouth shut real quick and acted (laughs) like I knew what was going on the whole darn time. So uh, yes, please and thank you. Oh yes, very normal.
0: Oh my God, that is the most <laughs> hilarious thing I've ever heard in my life. It doesn't really have to do with travel, <laughs> but I did
1: have to travel to Seattle to uh, learn. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: my God, thank you so much for sharing that. You made my
1: entire day. Well, enough about me. We, we have we have a uh, listener submission. <laughs> yes, we probably shouldn't uh, belabor this point too long, you know. Uh, what do our listeners have to say about travel?
0: <laughs> well, we got this very wonderful um, submission from Stephanie, and I'll just read it in her words. So last year, I traveled to India to teach at Shanti Bhavan. I was petrified to travel 20 hours away with my bassoon. On the way back from India, I got stopped in the Bangalore airport in security. They thought my bassoon was a gun, and the security man was trying to open my case upside down. I naturally screeched and I opened the case for them. After many minutes of arguing, the head of security came over, took one look at my bassoon, and said, Oh, a guitar! That's fine. Honestly, at least he didn't call it an oboe. <laughs> A guitar. That's a new one. A guitar. It's new. Mm-hmm.
1: I've done oboe, bass oboe, and bass clarinet, but not guitar. But That's a good one.
0: <laughs>
1: Jillian says, when the National Youth Orchestra of Canada was traveling back from a tour of Japan and Hong Kong, I was one of the first people to go through the security line at the airport. The agent kept looking through my bag, of course, opened my oboe case, and I was holding my breath, thinking, please don't take it out of the case. He managed to ask me if it was a clarinet, and I said, no, oboe. Uh, Side note, (laughs) this is from Jillian, when language is a barrier with a security agent, just say yes, it is a clarinet. Back to the story. Uh, So he finally said, okay, you play. So I assembled it in front of him, and the entire line of orchestra members behind me played a few notes to which he said, keep going. From the back of the line, someone called out, Don Juan. It was suddenly... (laughs) Excerpt request hour. Luckily, we had plenty of time at the airport because it seemed like most of the orchestra behind me were also asked to play their instruments. We should have organized a flash mob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is incredible. You should have been like, proms uh, violin concerto, violins.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I just wonder what the other people go on Don Juan, give me thought. a break. <laughs> They're like, uh... Is happening they were just doing it for fun at that point they were just bored <laughs> it's like why is Jillian playing a guitar
0: <laughs> uh thank you Stephanie and Jillian those were incredible and thank you Jackie that was amazing I'm so glad my lame story reminded you of your epic story <laughs>
1: Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you.
0: Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com.
1: We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish James Ryan, professor of oboe at the University of North Texas. Welcome.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: We love to get to know our guests by starting off having them tell us how they began to play their instrument. So when did you start the oboe and what made you choose it?
2: Well, I started in the eighth grade. My parents gave my sister a flute to learn and uh, she hated it. And so I inherited it. And in the seventh grade, I was stuck playing the flute because we had the instrument. And, um, I was probably the worst flute player there, and I disliked the instrument so much that I was looking for any alternative. So uh, at one point, we watched uh, Leonard Bernstein with the Young People's Concerts. This immediately dates me, of course. Um, And I thought, wow, the oboe, There's, there's Harold Gomberg playing the oboe, and it looks like the hardest thing in the world. And as it turns out, my father actually was a sax player in high school, but he was also given the oboe. And he had described it as the hardest thing in the world. In fact, I remember his description of trying to play. it. just... <laughs> and I thought, you know, all right. Uh, there's so many flute players around and I'm, you know, I just got to get away from this. So I'm going to play this instrument. And uh, so my parents said, okay. And in the eighth grade, um, our band had a an oboe that i was given it was an instrument that had been sitting around for years and um, they found me a teacher uh, sergeant robert hole you principal oboe of the u.s army band who um, actually had studied with john mack when john mack first came to the um, cleveland orchestra many years ago anyway robert hole was uh, terrific he was uh, about a half hour away from our house and uh, he, uh, he was a very fine oboist, and I went, we were living in the D.C. area because my father was in the Navy and stationed in Washington, D.C., and we would hear the Army Band at Watergate, and, um, and uh, I would study with him on a weekly basis, and he was a terrific teacher. Um, he also taught oboe lessons in um, the basement of his house in Arlington. And the basement was so filled with junk that there was this very, very narrow path that you had to thread, go down the stairs and thread the path to the corner of the basement where he had his reed desk and uh, his music stand and where he taught his lessons. And of course, the floor was just strewn with reed shavings and all kinds of stuff. And I remember uh, just one story vividly. He uh, he used to beat time with a, a baton. And it was very precise, click, click, click. One day, I'm sitting there playing, and there's a fly that comes and lands on his read desk. And you know the fly was being a nuisance. And and at one point, I'm playing, and he takes his baton and goes, FLA! <laughs> puts the fly in half. And <laughs> I thought, wow, that's <laughs> incredible. And of course, he looked at me like, oh, yeah, sure, I do this every day. I'm sure it was a once-in-a-lifetime event. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so I, I started playing the, the you know, and finally, I think after the first year, bought my own instrument and uh, continued playing and and was able to, uh, as a high school student, play with the Air Force Band on um, and the Navy Band, the Air Force Band and the Navy Band. I played Swan of Tuonello with the uh, Navy Band and uh, a Handel uh, Concerto with the Air Force Band. And they, these were very nice arrangements, you know, And and it, at one point, Many years ago, I thought, well, it'd be nice to try to find those arrangements for a band because they're, they're really good. And, you know, it'd be a great opportunity for oboists oboist to play with these bands. Well, as it turns out, they're all proprietary. They will not, they, they've, they have full-time arrangers that do nothing but arrange for the bands. Oh. But um, they stay with the bands. The bands, I believe, I'm not sure about this, but I don't believe the bands share their arrangements with each other. So... <laughs> So I remember those arrangements and how lovely they were, but uh, you, you, they're not generally available. I'm sure that they're still there with the service band. At any rate, um, that's how I came to start the oboe. And um, if you if you want me to go on about, uh, I, I went to Yale thinking that I was going to be a physics major. Uh, before actually Robert Hole, um passed away uh, at some point in my high school career. Um, I'm not sure exactly when that was, but uh, I then started with, studying with a uh, someone who, who played in the Kennedy Center Orchestra, Gene Montooth, um, who also taught at uh, Shenandoah Conservatory. And um, I saw him many years later because he had retired down in Florida. Our woodwind quintet from the University of Akron was playing a tour in Florida, and we played uh, very close to his home, and I had a chance to catch up with him. Um, So, And then um, I went to Yale thinking I was going to be a physics major. I ended up majoring in engineering because the physics was too much, but I was also um, able eventually to study with Robert Bloom, who taught at the Yale uh, School of Music at the time, who later then went on to teach at Juilliard, Uh, after his forced retirement from Yale. And um, uh, I I spent a year as a prospective physics major, and then uh, the engineering department recruited me because uh, they had so few majors at the time. At the time, the Vietnam War was going, and engineering was uh, probably the least favored major at Yale. Uh, And then, um, but I I initially studied with... uh, um, Harry Sargas, who um, was a senior at the time at Yale um, and uh, went on to play principal in the Toronto Symphony and then um, taught at the University of Michigan for a number of years. And then I studied for one semester with Richard Kilmer, who was finishing his DMA at Yale and freelancing in New York. And um, it was really, Kilmer who um, got me to playing the oboe more seriously it was really a semester Richard is a terrific teacher and after a semester he convinced Bloom to take me on as a student and I did and um, it was after that that I was able to get into Blossom Festival and, and study for two summers with John Mack and then uh, i graduated with a degree in engineering but my first job down in florida uh, was as an instructor of oboe and uh, I, I see on some of your questions here that they <laughs> they want to know how you got your first job well as it turns out it's a it's a rather complicated story but um the university of south florida uh had uh had a big turnover. Um, the, uh, uh, about six or so faculty had gone from the University of South Florida to Florida Central. And one of those people who left was the Oboe professor. Um, yeah, you know, I'm drawing a blank on a number of the names. Um, but at any rate, um, they lost their department chair and about five faculty, one, one of whom was the Oboe teacher. So they went uh, They went looking around for prospective oboe teachers, and uh, my teacher at Yale got a call, and he recommended me. Of course, I didn't have a degree. I wasn't even working on a degree in music. But as it turns out, at the University of South Florida, the person they appointed as chair of the department, Nelson, a gentleman named Nelson, um, became the chair of the department, and he had been principal cellist of the... Um, of the London Philharmonic uh, before he was hired at the University of South Florida. A very distinguished uh, man uh, who um, didn't have a degree in anything. I mean, basically he was Australian and was a prodigy and hired at the hired by the London Philharmonic as a very young man and stayed there for many years until he decided that he'd like to retire in Florida. And he became a cello teacher at the University of South Florida. Anyway, he, uh, he was appointed in the interim as chair of the music department at the University of South Florida. Uh, he brought in, because there was a resident woodwind quintet, they were committed to find the, finding the best player they could find. So he brought in a number of players to play with their quintet. And I was actually one of the first people they brought in. Um, I'm not sure how many people they, they actually brought down. I think it may have been four or five. The problem is that not knowing the administrative um, protocols at the University of South Florida, uh, Nelson Cook actually used a faculty line to pay for all the travel for people who came in and, and auditioned. Now, Whoa. those of us who've been in academia for a while know that you don't mix those budgets. You can't take a faculty line for, for the expenses of a search. But Nelson uh, didn't really understand that. He was thrown into this position, and, very quickly and they wanted to find oboist. so he used this faculty line to to find oboists well uh, they decided eventually that they wanted me to teach there and since i didn't have a degree in music they were willing to hire me as an instructor of oboe and that's how i came down to florida to teach at the same time the uh, the job uh at in the florida gulf coast symphony which is now the florida orchestra i believe Uh, had an opening, Um, but the the principal oboist of that orchestra actually didn't uh, leave the job for a year. So I came to Florida to teach for a year, and then the opening in the symphony opened up, and I got that job um, a year after going to Florida. Well, so I didn't have a degree in music, I'm teaching at the university, and the uh, chair of the department didn't have a degree in music and had already done something that he shouldn't have done. (laughs) The Florida auditor caught up with him, I think it was two or three years later. Oh my God. And he decided to go back to his native Australia before (laughs) facing the consequences in Florida. (laughs) So he left, but not before uh, having his son, Tony Cook, hired to take his place as the cello teacher at the University of South Florida. At any rate, um, I, I... I'm going through this uh, sort of involved uh, history of my career to show that it's not typical, okay? Um, so, so Tony, uh, 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 Nelson leaves, uh, gets Tony hired, but Nelson leaves and the person to take, who takes his place is, uh, has been teaching um, clarinet part-time at uh, the University of South Florida, I believe, but be, became a full-time clarinet teacher uh, because they had enough enrollment. Anyway, he going from that position, he became chair of the department, and I think one of his salient qualifications was his famili- familiarity with the rules—that is, what you can use in which budget. <laughs> okay, but but he was also quite familiar with the fact that uh, the 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 um, the department of music needed to hire faculty that actually had degrees in music. So, uh, he was very concerned that I didn't have a degree in music and it was clear that I was not going to advance to a tenure track position without a degree in music, but he was very <clears throat> uh, generous and kind in and suggesting that I could get a leave of absence to get my master's degree at Juilliard because Robert Bloom was now teaching at Juilliard and I could apply and most likely be accepted to get my master's at Juilliard even without an undergraduate degree in music.
0: That's pretty unusual.
2: Well it is very unusual. So I had been at South Florida for three years and I was given leave of absence to get to complete my degree. In the meantime um, um, they hired a temporary replacement for me, um, Jan Eberle. Jan had just uh, graduated from Curtis And this was, I believe, her first job. And she took over, I believe, she took over in the symphony for a year uh, while I, and she took over at the university uh, while I was up in New York. Um, The the symphony gave me one year leave. As it turns out, the university gave me two years of, of leave. After the first year of leave from the symphony, I had to commute from New York to Florida to play the Florida what was at the time Gulf Coast, but now Florida Orchestra. So I finished my degree at Juilliard commuting to uh, Florida to maintain the symphony work. And um, the university was willing to give me one more year to finish the degree. So it took me two years to get the the master's degree at Juilliard. (coughs) One of the reasons it took me two years at Juilliard is because they didn't accept a lot of my credits from Yale, which was also an interesting situation because uh, Juilliard has very strict academic requirements. And uh, actually, I'm, I'm saying that somewhat fac- facetiously. The fact is they do require English, and Yale at the time did not require an English course. So I had to take world literature at Juilliard, which was actually a very good course. <laughs> uh, and, and I really enjoyed it. But the, you know, it, it was funny because I I just didn't feel that the rest of the class had the same interest in the course. <laughs> uh, at any rate, so so um, I finished the degree at Juilliard. While I was doing that, I actually um, had uh, let's see. I went back. Well, anyway, it's all fuzzy. It's, it's a long time ago. But at some point, I went back and taught at the University of South Florida. But I also got a job playing in the Caracas Philharmonic in Venezuela. Um, so I think I was back in Florida for a year and then um, took, either extended my leave with South Florida, I can't remember what happened, but <laughs> I extended the leave with South Florida to take the job in Caracas for a year. Um, no, no, actually, no, I came back to South Florida and and. Um, yeah all right so <laughs> i sh- I should really be looking at my resume somewhere, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in there somewhere in there uh, somewhere in there, I actually got a job playing in an orchestra in Brazil, and i also my future wife was a cellist. she also got a job in Brazil, so at some point we went to Brazil for a summer to play in this new orchestra in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. The summer passed um. Summer in Brazil is actually winter. Um, I was asked to play in a beautiful old Baroque cathedral in the dead of July and the temperature in the cathedral was 50 degrees. I I couldn't afford to crack my instrument so I told them look I can't play. Uh, They fired me. I later got reinstated after I explained to them that I really couldn't risk you know cracking my oboe and then um at that point, I had to get back to the University of South Florida. So I had to make a decision to either to stay in Brazil or go back to South Florida. The thing is that I had gotten my master's degree. South Florida had given me assurances that I would um, be eligible for a tenure-track position after getting my master's degree. Unfortunately, the person who made that assurance, that is the clarinetist who had taken over from the cellist, he lost his job as chair of the department, so they had a new chair of the department, and uh, the new chair of department was uh, wasn't privy to this agreement I had about getting uh, a tenure track position. So I'm down in Brazil, you know, explaining to them, "Well, look, if I don't have this position, then you know, I'm I'm going to stay in Brazil." Of course, i had just been fired from the job in Brazil, so I had to get. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the job in Brazil back long enough to tell the people in Florida, "Look, I- I'm sorry, but uh, it- unless you put me in as a tenure track position, I-, I can't come back, and I have this job here." So they scrambled and gave gave me a tenure track position. So I went back to the University of South Florida. If this sounds al- awfully garbled, it's probably because it-, it is getting a little scrambled in my head. But I am. <laughs> I ended up back at the university of South Florida with a tenure track position. And then I believe a year or two years later, uh, this job in Caracas came by. And of course, at this point, South Florida is looking at me like what's going on with this guy. But, um, but the job in Caracas also hired my, um, future wife. And so we both went to Caracas and, um, at that point, um, the University of South Florida hired Nancy Warnick, who uh, actually had been one of my colleagues at this orchestra in Brazil. <laughs> so, at any rate, I um, I actually came back to South Florida when, uh, well, at some point, um, I got the job for a year um, as a temporary, taking the place of. Um, I think it was Nancy who, who had to go off, who got to leave for a year by this time. And so I spent another year teaching at the University of Akron. The, all the people in the Wynn Quintet were still there. They knew me, they thought it was a great idea for me to come back and take someone's place for a year. And during that year, I managed to get the job at the University of, uh, University of Akron. And uh, then I spent 19 years at the University of Akron. Um, I'm married by this point point, i was married in caracas my first child was born in caracas venezuela we went to florida for a year and then went to um akron for 19 years where my second child was born and um, my wife and i played in the akron symphony for let's see i didn't play the first year it was the same thing the person who had the job was there for a year And then, so I played in Akron Symphony, I guess, for 18 years before going to the, um, going to LSU. Um, And then I spent eight years at LSU, and I've been at the University of North Texas for nine years. Um, And in Baton Rouge, I, after the first year, oh no, I think it was, Baton Rouge was the The one time I actually got the job in the symphony when I got the job at the university. Uh, But I had to audition. And um, I was auditioning against my students, which is always a sort of strange situation. Uh, Especially when they're very good players, you know. (laughs) Anyway, I'm still playing in the uh, Baton Rouge Symphony, um, which uh, unfortunately had to cancel their concert this week, as Galip knows. Um, so we're here at home, just hunkered down, um, but, um, but yeah, I've been playing in Baton symphony now for gosh, since I guess 2003, maybe it's close to 15, close to 15 or 16 years. Um, and I commute and, um, it's actually easier to commute to Baton Rouge than it is to commute to Garland over on the other side of Dallas. So. Oh, man. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> anyway, that's sort of my career in a nutshell. Uh, I, we played uh, in a, a woodwind quintet, which is still going um, at the University of Akron. It's called Solaris. I think we did uh, two tours of, of Florida and a tour of Sweden while I was playing with the group. And we put out, I think, three CDs. Um, and they're still doing very well. They, in fact, played a, um, they, they, a couple of years ago. Played one of my arrangements of uh, the um, Stravinsky Pulcinella. Oh, cool! With ballet, uh, we've done this with the Akron Symphony uh, Chamber Group. Um, I, I started with I think four movements, and I think I have um, six or seven now of the original suite for woodwind quintet.
0: Is that available
2: for purchase? Uh, no, because it hasn't been um, out of copyright for. Uh, oh. But I think it may be at this point. It's it's not available. I have a number of arrangements for wind quintet, and my latest is a an arrangement of um, three works that we played with the Baton Rouge Symphony Chamber Players. It's the uh, Ravel Tambo de Couperin. Oh
0: yeah.
2: All six movements. Uh, the four that were originally arranged by Ravel for Orchestra, and then I took it upon myself to arrange the other two. Um, the arrangement is for uh, four winds: flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, four strings, string quartet, and harp. And uh, they've, they've been fairly successful. I thought um, the performance in Baton Rouge went very well. I played them at the um, Southern Illinois Music Festival. And I have video recordings of them on uh, my website um, at, uh, at North Texas. Um, I got a grant to uh, do the video from Texas. Uh, and I have a number of other, like the Stravinsky and some other woodwind quintet arrangements. But I haven't, uh, I haven't published them because it's just, uh, it's not really worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough. it's Maybe soon. Um, Well, maybe Uh, you know there there have been copyright issues, but for instance, the the Ravel, uh, the Strauss, and the Respighi. I I did the Ravel, the Tamba de Couperin, and the uh, Strauss a movement from his um, dance dance suite, the Couperin. So there's a connection between uh, the Strauss and the the Ravel because they are both based on Couperin. Uh, and then there's uh, I did the second uh, Respighi suite for ancient airs and dances, a- ancient second suite of ancient airs and dances, um, and that has the same connection. All three pieces, the Strauss, the Ravel, and the Respighi, were written about the same time, within four years, uh, in the early 1920s, mm-hmm. and uh, they they all look back to um, older music, to music from the um, 17th and 18th centuries. So there's a there's a connection between all of them and uh, they work fairly well. The Respighi's actually was the hardest because um, there are a lot of harpsichord solos that I had to Mm -hmm. translate to harp and I needed a lot of work from my friends and colleagues the harpists because uh, harpsichord is not the same as harp and harp is very special. You really have to play the harp to know how to write and arrange for the harp. And uh, so I've learned a lot about harp in the past couple of years because of the arrangements.
0: Well, I wonder if I could backtrack a little bit.
2: Sure.
0: You are a capital letters smart person with your <laughs> undergraduate degree in physics and engineering. And I wonder how that translates to your readmaking
2: well first of all um you know <laughs> smart is a relative thing i decided to become an engineer because i didn't think i could manage as a physicist So
0: <laughs> that just sounds wild to my I ears
2: at engineers or physicists or <laughs> or it's just what practice.
0: do engineers and physicists think about musicians
2: well, you know, we have a—I have a very good friend who's a Russian who's head of the material science engineering at um, at University of North Texas, and he recently became uh, associate dean for research at the College of Engineering, which is a pretty outstanding program. Uh, his his department in material science really accounts for a good chunk of the grant money that the University of North Texas brings in. So at one point, we were encouraged by our deans to set up collaborations. And I thought, okay, I've got a friend in material science. Let's figure out how to 3D print the perfect oboe read. Okay. Yes. So we actually, I actually sat down with a bunch of his faculty and uh, caught one of my colleagues who was um, into the physical um, health a- a- aspects. Yeah, so we have a new degree in, in uh, health and music. At University of North Texas, and he was interested in musical prosthetics and things that have to do with assisting musicians who have health problems with their instruments. So the two of us were sitting there with about four engineers and um, talking about possible collaboration. And I brought a number of reeds in, and I put it in the oboe and said, "Here it is. Here's what we do, and here's you know, here's how we make it. Here's the material. It's a." Um, vegetable matter, but it would be really nice to have something that uh, we could recreate and not have to scrape on interminably to, to make our lives easier as physicians. And they were fascinated with the problem. They had never heard an oboe, most of them. Uh, you know, they were from all over the world, from India, from China, from Russia, various places in this department of material science. And uh, they were fascinated with the idea. You know, they thought it would be a possible project for one of their graduate students. Well, that was last year, about this time, and nothing's happened. No! <laughs> but I do have a student who, who has his own 3D printer, and I've tried to get him interested in somehow he won't do it? Well, he's, he's exploring. He's exploring. Oh, okay. These things take time. You know? We need it. Well... Um, for the first for the first time um, ever, I had a student audition for UNT for the multiple wind program, and he played on a on a legerie. and it wasn't bad. it, it was i was I've never heard an oboe on an artificial reed sound acceptable, but this this did. And I asked him, uh, do you, you know he's playing all of the all five of the woodwind instruments. I asked him if he was making his own reeds well. You know he started but nothing he had made was reliable so he had this read and he decided to play his audition on it and i was i was impressed it's the first time i've heard anybody play convincingly on an artificial reed. so you know i i think there are possibilities there but um whether i'll be involved in it or not i, I don't know i'm just i'm just learning how to make real reads you know it's uh,
0: Tell us about that a little bit. How, how, what do you, how do you approach readmaking and what do you coach your students to do in their readmaking?
2: Well, we have a readmaking class, okay? And my TF is in charge of that. Um, But I I do spend a fair amount of time with reads, but I try to get all of the basics of the routine work um, in this class so I don't have to spend as much time since dealing with reads, but, it's a it's a whole process. Basically, a lot of people come to well. I'm sure you you realize a lot of people come to their college not knowing much, if anything, about readmaking. So we have the read class that's part of their lessons. So they have to, until they can get two consecutive A's in their readmaking, they have to take this class as part of their lessons. Okay. And the, the there are two tests in our read class, one happens at midterm, one happens at the end. And the tests are all the same. They come in with a blank read, it can be scraped as much as they want, but it can't be clipped yet, okay? So they come into the test, when they clip it, the ti- timer starts. They have 10 minutes to finish it. And they can have other reads there, if they take off a tip or something, they can start another one, but it has to happen in 10 minutes. And um, when they're done, at the end of the 10 minutes or before, the reed has to crow an octave C, it has to play an A at 440, and they have to be able to play three lines of a Barrett articulation study on the reed. So that at least it's not so hard that they can't get through those three lines. Okay? If they can do all of those things, they get an A. If it's somewhere less than that, they get a B or lower. If they have to start with another reed, they start with a B and go from there. Okay. So as it turns out, um, I've never had anybody fail the first read test of the semester. Okay. Usually with enough group effort and group um, sort of awareness, people can get to the point where they can make a read that will play in some fashion. Now the requirement is that they have to get two A's in a row. So they'll continue to take this course until they get an A on, the midterm and the final or the final and the next midterm or something like that. But I've discovered that, um, this test, which is basically, it's not original to me. I believe that John Mack and some of his students sort of came up with this idea, but it does focus the attention. That is you, you really have to focus on getting things to work, being accurate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's nothing there's nothing particularly good about making reads fast. I mean, I actually spend a lot more time on a read, but I can get a read going so that I can practice on it within the 10 minutes. I do believe that it forces a student to focus, it forced, forces them to get sufficient skill to get their reads going quickly so they can spend more time practicing. The the I spent so much many years, you know, wasting time on reeds before I get around to practicing that I have to tell my students, look, learn from my mistakes. Mm-hmm. You must practice before you start making your reeds. Otherwise, you'll never practice. Right. So, so that's, I mean, that's the basic, basic approach. I really do believe that the see and we're going to test this now because we're not going to have face-to-face reed making classes. Right. We have to go completely on the sound. Um, and. You know, we can look at the reeds, whatever you can see, you know, <laughs> but you can't see much. You know, you can't see the detail on a reed. So we're going to have to go completely from audible cues on what the reed is doing when it's crowing. Now, I have found over the years that there's the genuine crow and the, the uh, cheating crow. Because I remember when discussing this many years ago with John Mack, he'd say, yeah, when you crow your reed, you put your lips on the bark, you know. And, and g- generally, you can coerce a crow out of a reed if you put your lips on the bark. I found that actually the reeds are most com- comfortable if they crow an octave C with your lips on the thread. Yeah. And I, I, I tell my students, look, put your lips on the bark because, you know, you want to get the reed to crow. You want to get a feel for it. And the cane is going to be hard to begin with. That is, for me, making a reed is a three day process because the cane is constantly swelling after you've taken the bark off. So, yes, you do cheat a little bit because you want Yay. to see where the reed is going to be in three days after it's broken down and mashed it down and all those things. So, the cheating pro is useful, but really I found that the, the reeds play with total ease and comfort if you get the octave C with your lips on the thread. But, you know, both are valuable in terms of in terms of the process of reed making. And it's very important, you know, to to make sure that um, a reed is of the right opening because once you've worked on it and got it to work, the next time you soak it up, it's gonna probably be swollen and way too open. So you've got to spend most of your effort getting it back to a point where it's not over soaked, where the opening is correct, and then you can start from there. Mm-hmm. But I, I just also remember so many years, you know, taking an over-soaked reed, oh, what happened to it? And I started scraping on it before I've gotten it to the point where it's actually playable in terms of the amount of soaking and the opening of the reed. So that and the fact that, you know, when you sit around to play an audition or a master class, the tendency is to over-soak reeds because you're just sitting there. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I tell everybody, look, it's very important that you – don't oversoak the reeds that you get the opening in a position so that it crows comfortably. And you can test that by just using the reed. You don't have to play a lot of notes. In fact, it's best not to play anything except if you're in the Texas all state system where you get to play the first note of the piece, that's fine. <laughs> but it's, it's much better to, to verify that your reed crows properly, that you can get it to work without the oboe in it. And, um, that's, that's important. I, I don't think you should try to play an audition or a master class unless you make sure that your reed is ready to go. It's just very embarrassing to try to play on an over-soaked and too open reed mm-hmm. because it won't, you won't be able to play for five or ten minutes, and that's the amount of time you have for whatever you're playing for. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, no, I, I think that's important. And uh, I also have a whole... Um, system of reed exercises that I think are important for learning how to voice and to control the reed and your embouchure. And um, so I, I stress those as a fundamental technique in playing the oboe. Um, I mean, it starts off with having a reed that crows an octave C, and then when you put it into your regular embouchure, you should be able to produce a very clear uh, C, first octave C, uh, on the reed, and then be able to voice it uh, in... Half steps up a minor third and down a minor third, and uh, Mark Ostich refers to these as Reed push-ups, and I think it's a it's a very valuable exercise, and it's actually a, an exercise that a lot of kids are familiar with from their band um, warm-ups because the band you'll hear the bands warming up, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, which is a good way to you know, start warming up the embouchure and the flexibility needed in, in the embouchure to. Uh, voice and play in tune so anyway those are those are the basics that i feel are important with reed making and with basic embouchure Um, it's so much easier to deal with the embouchure i think we're fortunate when we in the oboe because unlike the other reed instruments you really don't have this kind of self-contained unit that the oboe reed is i mean um even the English horn and the oboe de mori reeds require a vocal to simulate what the oboe reeds. But with the oboe reed, you can actually play it and have you know, have a, a viable instrument, whereas you don't really have that so much with bassoon or clarinet or saxophone. Um, I'm not familiar with those instruments and I'm not sure whether any of this translates to that, but I think we're fortunate with the oboe that we really can do these exercises with just the reed and accomplish a lot. And divorce this mechanism from the the issues that we have with our fingers and holding. Mm-hmm. So I, that's one reason I like tubes with cork on them is because the total metal tubes just just sort of drop when you put them in your mouth.
0: Oh, that's an interesting point.
2: But um, you know, it's it's not impossible. But I think that um, it's just a lot more convenient to have the lighter lighter staple when you're doing. So you
0: can do those exercises.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Could you talk to us about your interest and research in Brazilian music and if there are any hidden gems by Brazilian composers you'd like to um, point our oboe listeners' attention to? That'd be great.
2: Sure. My original interest in Brazilian music stemmed from the fact that I married uh, the daughter of a fairly prominent Brazilian composer and conductor and pianist. A gentleman's name was uh, Walter Burley-Marx. His daughter, Madalena, was a cellist. And um, she knew Villa-Lobos personally because Villa-Lobos was a personal friend of Walter Burley-Marx. And, in fact, Walter introduced villa Lobos's music to the United States at the 1939 World's Fair in New York, where he led the New York Philharmonic at the Brazilian Pavilion at the New York World's Fair in 1939. Uh, Walter also conducted the National Symphony, the Cleveland Orchestra, the Pittsburgh Symphony, in addition to the New York Philharmonic. And uh, he's not well known as a composer, in spite of the fact that he wrote four symphonies and some other overtures. Um, his, uh, later in his life, his daughter, because none of his symphonies were being performed, his daughter encouraged him to write chamber music, and he's written some really lovely chamber music for um, oboe, flute, and cello, a piece of divertimento, which I have published. Um, And uh, when he passed away, I took the slow movement of his fourth symphony, which we actually premiered in Caracas, Venezuela. Um, It has a huge oboe solo in it. And so I took it and reduced it to oboe and piano that I played at his uh, memorial service. That is now published by Jeunet, it's called Andante by Walter Burley Marx. Um, At any rate, um, uh, we were interested in playing in Brazil. So we both got a job in an orchestra in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. And then when we went and played in Venezuela for five years, we were actually fairly close to Brazil and and went down um, and uh, sort of uh, you know stayed in touch that way then um when i came to uh, uh the university of akron i organized a brazilian festival on the basis of a grant in 1990 i think it was and i went to brazil and with the assistance of one of walter's good friends um jose Vieira brandao um managed to contact uh most of the well known and important conductors in Brazil. I was soliciting music for our festival at the University of Akron. Jose Vieira Brandão has a very beautiful woodwind quintet called Divertimento. He put me in touch with uh, Francisco Bignone, who is well known in bassoon circles for his valses. Uh, I met Francisco's wife, Josefina, who actually was featured in the IDRS journal recently. Someone did an interview of her. Mm-hmm. Um when I met her, Minonia Mignoni had passed away fairly recently. Um he wrote for Noel Devos, uh who uh you know is well known for um actually a whole school of playing in uh, Brazil. And I did meet no- Noel when I was down there. He played on the French bassoon, but made it clear to me that his students played on both French and German bassoons. He didn't he didn't have uh an axe to grind in any way about that. Um, So Mignone has written uh, some woodwind quintets. Edino Krieger has a really lovely woodwind quintet. Oswaldo Lacerda, he is a composer who uh, lived in Sao Paulo, has written three really lovely quintets. Um, The earlier ones are very characteristically Brazilian. And um, most of this repertoire can be found on a Brazilian music collection website at the University of Akron. I created that website. It hasn't been updated for probably close to 20 years now, uh, but still there's a fair amount of information and repertoire that is held, uh, mostly manuscript, at the University of Akron Library. And I suspect it's been put in deep archive by this point. If anybody's really interested in it, I think they can find it. Um, a friend of mine who I, I met At this this, uh, expedition to collect Brazilian music, he was a very young composer. Uh, João Guilherme Ripper uh, had to uh, ask Brandão if he could meet me, because Ripper wasn't sort of on the guest list. I mean, Brandão was contacting all the best known people, and Ripper was a, a, well, I call him a kid, but he had just gotten a job teaching theory and composition at the Federal University in Rio de Janeiro, which was a big deal. There was a lot of competition for the job. He, you know, to get that job, unlike in the U.S., the uh, candidates actually had to, on the spot, write a four-voice fugue to demonstrate their, their prowess <laughs> at with fugue and with traditional forms. So, uh, Je, uh, João had won this job and had gone through all of these, passed these rigorous tests to get this position as a very young man at the Univers- the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Anyway, he. Um, came to us and he, he presented a woodwind quintet he had written and uh, that was called uh, romaria and um, it was in a whole box of music that i took back to the university of akron and our woodwind quintet at akron read through about 10 of these woodwind quintets um i'd like to name more of them for you but it's it's uh it's a little difficult at this point, but one of them we we read was this Real Maria, and it so impressed the group that we decided to commission Jerome to write another um, quintet for the group, which he did. It was based on uh, the life of uh, Joseph, and um, uh, we ended up uh, playing this, premiering this work down in Brazil for one of the Biennale festivals. Brazil is... Um, is uh, wonderful from one standpoint every two years just about all of the musicians and composers get together for a big festival in rio and where they introduce all the all the new music and everything they've been doing and it's a a great opportunity to hear what's going on through a cross-section of brazilian music i don't know if that's still going on but i suspect it is in some uh, shape or form but it's it's a great opportunity to see what's going on so we we played there. I remember our concert in the hall in uh, uh, in the federal university uh, was. Uh, it was during yeah it was it was in the warmer months. I think it was December or something, but it was ninety six in the hall, and we were stripping down because <laughs> everybody was just, we were just taking off clothes because it was just like being in a sauna, oh, and uh, the bassoonist. Uh, Bassoonist could only the bassoons was the only woman in the group, and she could only take off so much in propriety, but she was just about ready to you know to do away with propriety uh, <laughs> because, because we were we you know it was really it was really a sauna anyway that was a lot of fun and um uh, so i i I still have some pieces that um uh I I do bring back the Lacerda probably more than any of the others because it's, uh, I played it last summer at the, um, the class festival uh, with a group of faculty there and they really enjoyed the piece. None of them had uh, heard of it before. Um, I believe it's published now by Jeanne. Jeanne took a lot of the music that I brought back. She got in touch with Lacerda. I think she's published several of his quintets. Um, She, I, I don't, uh, she may have published the, the Ripper quintet. Uh, she may have published Krieger." Um, if you look at her catalog, I think she has a specific Brazilian uh, section of sort of uh, book, uh, bookmark. Um, so I think that's a very good source. Uh, there is now a, a whole, there is a whole publishing company based in New York dedicated to Brazilian music. They oh, have some very interesting things. Um, But at any rate, uh, I organized a festival of Brazilian music at uh, UNT my second year I was here, and we brought a woodwind quintet up from, um, from Brasilia. They played a piece the Ripper wrote for woodwind quintet and strings, and it's a very nice piece. Um, It's, you know, there's a very limited repertoire for woodwind quintet and orchestra, and this this, um, fits that. He also wrote a mass for a quintet, soprano, I think it's woodwind quintet, or at least winds and soprano, which is an interesting piece. Uh, He's written a a number of other chamber works. Anyway, he's a very interesting and very successful composer. He's written now, I believe four operas, and which have all been performed either in Sao Paulo or Rio de de Janeiro. for me, it's particularly gratifying because I met him when he was just starting out and I've seen, you know, how successful he's been since then. And uh, I hope his success continues. Um, anyway, that's uh, what I know about Brazilian music in a nutshell.
0: Thank you. That was really great. What advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours?
2: Well. Um, I think the most important thing, and and what I tell my students and their parents, is that um, you do music because you can't imagine doing anything else, okay? Um, It it requires that much dedication and that much, um, you know, very uh, narrow, concentrated effort. That said, how do we as teachers justify all of the students we have well you know as long as they understand that um, i love music i think it's the greatest thing that i could possibly have done with my life that you know i possibly could have done something else but i don't think it would have been nearly as satisfying as what i do but for me the most important thing about learning music and the oboe specifically is that it requires discipline and an intellectual and physical focus that uh, requires self-mastery. My pitch basically is that if you can master the intellectual and the physical de- discipline of learning to play the oboe, you really can do anything. So that you, you develop these skills, you develop this self-discipline, and no matter where you end up in your career, you will have the discipline to be a success at something, hopefully something that you love doing. Okay. So, so from that standpoint, I do not take responsibility for finding my students work. All I can do is give take responsibility for, for helping them to find the discipline and self knowledge to do whatever they want to do, whatever they love to do. So, um, that's my advice basically is don't worry about what you're going to do with your career worry about learning to play the oboe and make music as an artist to the best of your ability because if you do those things and you do those things well there's a good chance you can make a career in music it's a big industry Um, if you concern yourself with all those things and if you let for instance, your parents concerned with your making your way in life, which is a reasonable concern. I have children of my own, and I'm delighted that they both are making their way in life in areas that I never would have suspected when they were kids you know or or even going to school. Um, I mean, I can go into that story, but i I feel it's illustrative of of what you know you do in life you you learn your skills you you get as much understanding as you can, you apply them to what you're most passionate about, and then you go about trying to make a living. And uh, that's I think the best advice we can give in music because it is such a competitive field and there are many people who are dedicating their lives to it because they can't imagine doing anything else. And that's the reason we do it. It's hard to imagine doing anything else. So. That's the best advice I can give to kids. I mean, my own kids, uh, my son uh, was into Asian philosophy, to martial arts, to a lot of different things. He's a sort of natural linguist. He spent a year at the University of Akron, then went to Taiwan to study political science. Um, He taught himself, mandarin basically and after a year enrolled in a university in taiwan and then uh, uh, decided that he wanted to get to know venezuela so he spent a year and a half in venezuela uh, and landed a job as a spanish mandarin translator with a tech company as a result of that he's he decided he had an interest in business and went to business school and then Ended up uh, getting a job with SurveyMonkey as a data analyst, but got more excited about the programming aspect of it, taught himself all the programming languages he needed to be a software engineer, and he's now a software engineer with SurveyMonkey. Wow. So my daughter uh, went to the University of Chicago, majored in anthropology. She got a grant uh, later in her career at the University of Chicago to uh, do a study in, um, in Senegal where she had to learn some Wolof. Uh, Senegal's national language is French. She, she learned French in high school. And while she was in Senegal working on this project, she contracted malaria and malaria was so widespread. It was like having a cold. And so she decided at that point that anthropology just didn't seem relevant enough. She was going to go to med school, so she came back. Uh, she graduated from the University of Chicago. I mean, she she was Juliet in a play. You know, she's also an artist. She does many different things, but she decided she wanted to be a doctor. So she had to spend two years at uh, LSU taking her pre-med courses. Uh, went to med school in Miami. Is now in her fourth year of residency as a surgeon at Jackson Memorial hospital. But when she was in college, I would never have imagined that she would end up as a doctor. Okay. But whatever she did in college uh, and whatever she did in preparing for medical school gave her the discipline to be a surgeon at this point. Um, So I guess my main point is that do what you do, very, very well, get the discipline to learn whatever you're learning, whether it's oboe or um, organic chemistry, and then uh, see where your passion and your skills lead you at some point.
0: Jim, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was (laughs) wonderful to talk to you. It It was an hour. Can you believe it?
2: Yeah, No, I can't. I'm sorry.
0: So that was an amazing interview. Thank you so much for joining us for that. As always, you can find us on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can listen to us on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and everything. <laughs> Jackie, it's time to end this Nerd Parade.
1: Oh, make